Welcome to Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. In this episode, that month is December of 1969. My name is Brian Stratton. And I'm Jamie Wenger. That's right. Rob has the week off. Um, every now and then we let him out of his cage um, and uh, let him roam free. And if he comes back to us, uh, it proves that he truly loves us. <laughs> So fingers crossed, everyone. Yeah, uh, but his presence will be felt uh, in this episode if you are a Patreon supporter. You might remember that Rick Jones made his big musical debut in the pages of Captain Marvel number 18 not so long ago. Uh, I I would say it's probably maybe one of the most momentous Marvel moments uh, that we have covered so far on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. The the emotional resonance is with me to this to this day, to this very moment. Obviously, huge implications for the Marvel Universe. Uh, But uh, Rob promised that uh, if we got uh, five new patrons in September, uh, that he would arrange and record music uh, for Rick's live performance. So you came through, and so did he. Uh, If you are listening to the Patreon-exclusive extended edition of this episode, keep listening past the credits for a live recording of Rick Jones' first musical performance as channeled by Rob, but I guess for continuity purposes, let's just say that we got access to uh, Doom's Time Machine, uh, and that's how <laughs> we did it. If you're not a Patreon subscriber and you want to check this out, and I think you do, uh, it's uh, patreon.com slash month uh, to sign up. So that's that. Uh, Jamie, we have done it. We have reached the end of the 1960s. This is the last month of 1969. Ooh, and, and, and boy, are our arms tired. <laughs> something like that uh and not only is this the uh the final month of the 1960s it's also the last month that the earth would be without tonight's guest so uh let me just bring him in here he is the author of the eisner award-winning reading comics how graphic novels work and what they mean and the just published all of the marvels a journey to the ends of the biggest story ever told a man who knows the very specific pleasure and pain of reading every single marvel comic there is Douglas Wolk, welcome back to your very well-worn seat here at Marvel by the Month. Thank you so much. It is so nice to be back to this well-worn seat. This is your sixth appearance. I think the only person who has been been on more frequently than you uh, is Joe Keating. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, uh, it's always great to have you back. Uh, And congratulations on the release of all of the Marvels, which came out last week. And uh, it was published by uh, Penguin Random House, which is now uh, Marvel's comics distributor. It's true. Uh, was that the case when you signed the contract or did you have to work behind the scenes to make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am, you know, it is a happy accident. I signed that contract like five years ago. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. This has been in the works for a while. <laughs> so yeah. uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what all of the Marvels is all about? So all the Marvels is the book about what happened when, I read all 27,000 Marvel superhero comics published from 1961 onward and tried to look at them as a single gigantic narrative that's half a million pages long (laughs) and reflects a lot of what's been going on outside it and around it for the last 60 years of culture and is just sort of an imposing gigantic monument at the middle of pop culture that might be able to use a tour guide to people to kind of explain, uh, sh- show you show you around, not necessarily the highlights so much as some interesting pathways through it. Uh, you, I know you have been asked uh, by some other folks, um, you know, where where they should start um, when, I mean, 27,000 comics, half a million pages, that's, that's 
imposing, uh, intimidating to say the least. But I think you have a really great answer for that. Well, the the answer actually sort of directly contradicts the point of this show. Um, <laughs> uh oh, because <laughs> I say start anywhere, go where where you feel like going. Don't try to start at the beginning and go all the way through. <laughs> yeah, that way lies madness. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You uh, can, can confirm. I uh, I also have a slightly different question yeah. from let's let's say from a listener. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so hypothetically speaking, if you were reading all of the Marvel comics ever published uh, one month at a time um, and you're about to enter uh, 1970, which is not necessarily the most fondly remembered creative era uh, of the company's history, um, what are some things you can be looking forward to uh, in the next few years that will help get you through until Giant Size X-Men <laughs> number one hits in 75? <laughs> oh, th- there, there's actually a lot of fun stuff in the early 70s. It's just it's hiding in corners. Um, in 1972-73 is when the horror explosion happens, when the comics code gets revised and all of a sudden you can have vampires and Frankensteins and werewolves and you can't have zombies. You can't have zombies yet. Hmm. Uh, the Comics Code revision specifically still prohibited zombies and The Walking Dead. Why, uh, why, do you know why that is? Uh, who knows? But that's why Tales of <laughs> that's why Tales of the Zombie was a black and white magazine that was huh. you know, oversized and more expensive and not covered by the Comics Code. Oh, wow. uh, but uh, you, you could have uh, horror stories. The actual phrasing in the Comics Code is hilarious. It is this run-on sentence about you know, uh, Dracula. Uh, vampires and werewolves and stuff are acceptable when they're handled in the uh, literary tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and Bram Stoker and Edgar Allan Poe and other classic writers <laughs> whose works are read in classrooms and libraries throughout the world. Uh, something like, oh, wow. like, like <laughs> somebody <helpful. laughs> was, was a little bit speedy or, or at least caffeinated when they wrote that. Uh, but you'll start seeing that. You'll start seeing... Uh, attempt to do something a little bit different you'll see people uh well you're already starting to see the romance comics coming back although they're not really on marvel unlimited for the most part but my love and our love story had just been revived and had a lot of artwork by the Semas and john ramita and don heck and all of these people who had come out of a romance comics background partly before they'd started drawing superheroes but really like you could tell they just wanted to be drawing pretty girls crying and so i mean who among us <laughs> you know uh Steranko does an absolutely beautiful romance story one off called my heartbroken hollywood uh that is i think his last full story for marvel yeah uh, i think so you're right there, there's there's stuff like that there's stuff that turns up in horror anthologies that are popping up around this time and there are a lot of attempts to do something a little bit different and a lot of them don't work out and some of them bring in weirdos like jim starlin and tom sutton and to some extent gary friedrich who is kind of out there in a lot of ways yes he puts a black power salute on the first page of his first captain america story and he's he's like all right i'm getting in i'm gonna do my thing you will see jerry conway who is 19 years old when he gets handed the keys to Amazing Spider-Man. Wow. 
we should take a moment and mention that you had Mr. Conway on as a guest on your own podcast. I did on The Voice of Latveria, my weekly but taking a break for a couple of weeks but going to come back real soon podcast that is nominally a propaganda news broadcast from Cold War era Latveria shortwave radio and more genuinely a week by week going through specifically just the stories that Dr. Doom appears in, in the order that Doom experienced them, which is different from Marvel continuity because he has a time machine. (laughs) And uh, even more genuinely than that, really just kind of about whatever the heck my guests feel like talking about. Those are the best Uh, episodes. That's awesome. That's super fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great show. Super. Like it's, uh, it's such a fun, like grab bag every week to see like what direction things are going in. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I've I've always said that uh, some of my very favorite podcasts are uh, three guys and a thin premise, um, and I, <laughs> I think you you are hitting on a winning formula there. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, I have a question. Um, yeah. So you've read twenty seven thousand Marvel comics. Is that yeah. like try and give this question a, a minimal thought? Okay. Which one is your favorite? Do you have a do you have like when what's your favorite? Like yeah, out of a snap, um, you know? Okay. So it changes hourly or nightly. Sure. But uh sure. right now I'm gonna say the unbeatable squirrel girl number thirty one. Wow. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. That is that is the one where Squirrel Girl and Nancy get stuck with time at a standstill. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's a great issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, see? It's, it's got you know. Oh, it's you got, are good at this, huh? It's got action. It's got humor. It's got pathos. It's got everything you would want in a story. Um, yeah, it's it's lovely. Excellent. Well, Douglas, we are so looking forward to talking to you about all the Marvel comics of December nineteen sixty nine uh, in just a little bit. Uh, before that, as we always do, we're going to provide a little historical context by talking about what else was happening in December of nineteen sixty nine. I believe what historians commonly refer to as the pre-Wolk era. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Jamie, would you uh, would you start us off uh, with a little uh, insight into what was going on December first, nineteen sixty nine? Sure. Uh, December first, nineteen sixty nine, was the first draft lottery in the United States since nineteen forty two. Uh, the first in peacetime. Um, it was held. Uh, th- there were plastic capsules with each of the three hundred sixty six days of the year. Um, to be selected at random. And then men born on those days between 1943 and 1950 were to be given the highest priority by their local draft boards. Uh, the first dates picked were September 14th, April 24th, December 30th, February 14th. Ooh, Valentine's Day. Yeah. Bummer. Uh, October 6th, uh, I'm sorry, September 6th, October 26th, September 7th, November 22nd, and December 6th. I'm clear. Yeah. Yeah, I made yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, same here. Uh, the 366th and last selection was June 8th. And this, I guess, was something that I didn't quite understand. But um, I mean, there had been conscription. There was a selective service. But this is the first time that the United States was basically like, well, we're just going to pick dates at random. And if you your number is called, you're just going to you're going to come and join the army now. Like that's how this is going to go. Yeah. That is so uncomfortable. It's just an uncomfortable thing to think about. Yeah. Well, uh, boy, December 69 doesn't get a lot better. Uh, in some (laughs) ways Uh, on, uh, on the 4th of December, uh, the black Panther party's Illinois chairman, Fred Hampton and his associate, Mark Clark were assassinated by the Chicago police who were raiding the Panther location on Monroe street. 
after the signing of a search warrant for illegal weapons. Hampton was unarmed and asleep in bed when he was shot. Um, and uh, if you want to learn more about that, um, it is pretty important history. Uh, I would definitely recommend reading David F. Walker and Marcus Kwame Anderson's The Black Panther Party, uh, which came out, I believe, this year. Uh, for more information on that, uh, I would say that is absolutely essential reading. Mm, cool. Yeah, I, I will get that book. Um, on December 5th, uh, the initial plan for ARPANET, the first computer network or the first network of computer systems in different U.S. states, was realized as the University of Utah in Salt Lake City became the fourth of the four nodes for the data sharing in the Advanced Research Project Agency in the U.S. Department of Defense. On the uh, 6th of December, the Altamont Free Concert was held at the Altamont Speedway near Tracy, California, drawing 300,000 people. Uh, hosted by the Rolling Stones, it was an attempt at a Woodstock West, uh, but it was better known for the four deaths uh, that happened during the day, including the beating and stabbing to death of one of the spectators, Meredith Hunter, by the Hells Angels motorcycle group, who they had hired as security guards. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how does Rob feel about the Rolling Stones Beatles thing? Is he, is he like, uh, you know, these two bands fight each other or is there space in, in the culture I don't for both? I don't think he's much of a partisan when it comes mm, to that. Okay. I All think right. the Beatles just live on a different plane for him. So, sure. yeah. On December 7th, the animated Rankin-Bass Christmas special Frosty the Snowman, adapted from the song of the same name, was shown on television for the first time at 7.30 in the evening on CBS. So there's something. Yeah. <laughs> December 10th, uh, construction of the Federal Reserve Bunker, a storage facility for several billion dollars worth of United States currency was completed. The building and its underground facilities were housed within Mount Pony near Culpeper, Virginia, for the purpose of preventing the failure of the United States economy in the event of a nuclear war or similarly catastrophic national emergency. Uh, following the end of the Cold War, the currency was removed, and these storage facilities are now used by the Library of Congress as an archive for fragile media created during the 20th century, including film stock and audio and video recordings. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a cool story about like our shifting priorities as a culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, fragile media would that could that um, include paper? I mean, I would hope that there is. Uh, a complete run of at least, you know, the Ditko era Spider-Man's in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, they got some number ones down there for sure. <laughs> December 14th, 1969. This is uh, two days and 10 years before my birthday. Oh. Uh, during a halftime show at an NFL football game between the Vikings and the 49ers in Minneapolis, a large heart air balloon broke its moorings and carried its passenger, an 11-year-old boy, out of the Metropolitan Stadium and traveled three miles before <laughs> landing in the Minnesota River. Uh, the boy Rick Snyder was able to swim to shore and return to see the end of the game. Oh, nice. It's a, a, like happy a double happy ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a day that kid had. Yeah. Uh, on the 17th uh, of December, the first widely publicized warning of climate change was delivered by physical science Joseph O. Fletcher of the Rand Corporation to a meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco. Is that the other Rand Corporation? Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the Danny Rand Corporation. Um <laughs> Uh, Fletcher told the assembled scientists that very substantial changes had taken place during our lifetime in the increase in temperature in the first part of the 20th century, resulting in the melting of the ice caps of the Earth, that carbon dioxide had been responsible for up to one half of that warming, uh, 
And although mankind's influence on the warming had been small compared to natural causes, within another generation, man will become important, the carbon dioxide pollution apparently being the most important, and that the world had only a few decades to solve the problem. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that is super upsetting. So uh, for those of you 20, 30 years from now listening to this in your bunker, um, that's mm-hmm. that's when we knew that this could be a problem. Um, and we're sorry. Yeah. Oh, man, that is so disappointing. Um, all right, December 25th, 1969. Japanese electronics manufacturer Seiko introduced the world's first quartz clock wristwatch at a press conference in Tokyo. The electronic timepiece was the most accurate wristwatch in the world at the time, guaranteed to be accurate within five seconds for every month of use, and began a new era in watch manufacturing that dethroned Switzerland as the world's watch production leader. And then finally... Um... Let's let's end on a, a dramatic note. Um, on the 28th of December in New York, the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican militant group, took over the first Spanish Methodist church in East Harlem. Temporarily renaming the building the People's Church, the Young Lords provided a clinic, a daycare center, breakfast, evening entertainment, and classes at no charge until space could be secured for a Young Lords Center in the Bronx. Hmm. The group surrendered peacefully on January 7th, 1970, after bringing publicity to the needs of Puerto Ricans who had moved to or who had been born in the mainland U.S. and inspired the New Yorican moment uh, movement for New Yorkers of Puerto Rican descent. Oh, so there you go. I've never heard of any of that. That's super yeah. interesting. The, the more you know, Rainbow. <laughs> hmm. um, so that's uh, that's what was going on. Uh, a little bit of what was going on in 1969. We're going to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the comics that were uh, hitting the stands in December 1969 right here on Marvel by the Month. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Marvel by the Month. A lot of work goes into the show week in and week out, but we love making it. It is a real labor of love. But do you know what's better than a labor of love? A labor that you get paid for. Ah, yes. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we do really appreciate it when you go to patreon.com slash Marvel by the month and back us at the fantastic price of $4 a month. Think of it like you're tipping us a buck per episode. Uh, and if you're one of those people who has an elaborate justification for why you don't tip, you could just keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's also more than just a tip. Uh, you get something extra for subscribing. For instance, you get an extended version of this episode that you're listening to right now. An extended version of just about every episode from the season where we had a special guest. Uh, not to mention subscriber exclusive bonus episodes and a live recording of Rick Jones's first musical performance. <laughs> you do not want to miss that. Uh, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> each and every week, Patreon subscribers get additional content you can't hear anywhere else. Sign up at patreon.com slash Marvel by the month to instantly get access to all of our past, present and future subscriber exclusive content. Do it now. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we will be covering Amazing Spider-Man number 82, and then came Electro, written by Stan Lee, art by John Romita, and Jim Mooney. We open on Peter Parker looking stressed out and brooding about each of his problems with the supporting cast. Um, this is a very cool page. They all get a thumbnail image and a summary of what the trouble is, <laughs> including, and it's like all characters, 
except for like debt, which is just like <laughs> it's a really nice little like uh, icon of, of debt. Uh, and May doesn't get her own picture. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah, she does. Uh, she's she's right below that sort of sleeping. Oh, yeah. She's in the next oh, room. Yeah. Oh, that's she, why she doesn't get her own image. She yeah. uh, she collapsed after seeing Peter's web dummy last issue. Oh, so. You know, it's funny. I gave that a lot of thought and didn't think to connect the box to the image that is immediately below it. Yeah. So this is a it's a great um, it's just a great kind of layout situation. And it, it like clearly illustrates all of Peter's angst. Uh, and you get a shot of uh, Harry's mustache, um, which is, <laughs> has been a prominent uh, point of discussion on our show for a while now. I would say it has been the greatest adversary that Spider-Man has encountered so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then uh, Mrs. Watson and MJ show up to care for uh, the, the sickly Aunt May um, when Gwen calls to remind Peter about three things. The farewell dinner for his sort of social nemesis, Flash Thompson. Um, that he has to help pay for this dinner, which he can't do, but hasn't really told anyone about yet. Um, and that that MJ is off limits. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yep. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Peter changes into Spider-Man. Um, and as he's like swinging around, he gets like dirt blasted by a chimney um, and then swings by his apartment and spies Harry shaving off his mustache. Oh, so this yeah. is the end. It's the end of an era. I think I think Harry's going to turn out just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> this 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 seems bad. This, yeah. mm-hmm. I wonder what happened if he would have kept the mustache. Maybe that was like keeping keeping things at bay. Yeah, maybe. Um, so as he's swinging around, he has a weird kind of non sequitur and decides that what he needs to do is burst into like a TV businessman's office to offer his services as a TV show host panelist. Uh, for money, so he's I've gonna, heard this story before, and the punchline is the aristocrats. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Um, so they're there, and they're like, uh, ha- you know, trying to haggle out the details. Um, and while they're doing that, some dangerous electric cable co- uh, electrical cables uh, go haywire. Um, but a nearby stagehand flips a, a circuit breaker like it's no biggie, but it is a biggie because. Um, the someone else who works there says like an army would have been killed by the amount of voltage passing through that circuit breaker, which like, I, I'm not an electrician, but is that how circuit breakers it's, it's, work? Is it's, that how armies work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, but also, you know, generally people working on Marvel comics in the sixties had very little idea of how electricity works. You may remember that back in the first, uh, amazing Spider-Man annual Spider-Man avoids an attack from electro by grounding himself. Oh no! That's, oh, that's no. direct. That's that is exactly what opposite. you don't want to do. And it gets recapped here. And once again, he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be electrocuted if I hadn't grounded myself." Oh no! Oh yeah, <laughs> man. That's a, how, that's a how, big... how many how many electric electrocution deaths are on Stanley's conscience? When, right? when that story was reprinted in Marvel Tales in the eighties, they actually rearranged the panels and rewrote the dialogue. So it was like, "So I'm doing this to avoid grounding myself." Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. cool. I didn't know they, yeah, that's neat. Yeah. Um, so the guy who flipped the switch, I think maybe his hand is a little bit on fire, but he also yeah. seems fine with yeah. it. Um, so while this is happening, Spider-Man overhears that stagehand's name and thinks that it sounds familiar. Uh, and it should sound familiar. This is Max Dillon uh, or Electro in his uh, sixth Marvel Comics appearance. Um, seems like he has evil plans, but they're not quite ready yet for prime time. <laughs> um, 
so here we get a recap, but I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit because it's not like the usual recap that we've been getting lately in all the comics. It's not like a monologue recap of a character like taking us through recent events. It's kind of like um, like the audience is talking to, or like they're talking directly to the audience, mm-hmm. um, which seemed like I feel like they did stuff more like that in the olden, like older comics than this. Well, there's there's a lot of Jim Mooney in this particular story, and Jim Mooney had been a DC Comics guy for a long time. I don't know exactly to what extent, like, I mean, it it doesn't credit Lee and Romita and Mooney with with specific things. Uh, John Romita has talked about like, yeah, you know, Stan was great. He just uh, kept giving me credit even if I wasn't working on a particular issue. <laughs> <laughs> so. It, it's it's not totally clear what's going on here, but this this yeah it it may be it may be just sort of a throwback to Jim Mooney's familiar way of doing things. I don't yeah. know. Jim. Um, so uh, eventually we cut to uh, Flash's goodbye dinner, um, and <laughs> we get kind of like a love quadrangle. Like so, um, MJ makes some overtures towards Peter, uh, which Gwen shuts down real quick, and then Flash like makes what I think are some overtures towards Gwen, uh, which really makes Peter angry. So he storms off uh, and then Gwen chases him down and they have like a nice little romantic bench time in New York City. Meanwhile, Jameson and Electro make a $5,000 deal for the on-air unmasking of Spider-Man. And that was kind of like an odd scene where Peter wears a bag on his head while washing his costume at a laundromat and like a because he's got to he's got to look good for TV um, and he doesn't have a spare costume. So he he's he's so convinced that people are going to put two and two together if he's seen washing a Spider-Man costume. Like the first thing that people will assume is like, oh, he must be Spider-Man instead of like it's uh-huh. a guy with a Spider-Man costume. Right, right. Well, well which I guess is way more normal now than it would have been then. Right. Yeah. Do you think um, the crowd of people like looking at him? I feel like the top two panels on that page look very different than the rest of the issue. Oh, it maybe. Looks like, it yeah. looks like, um, what was that unfunny one that we used to read? Not brand X? <laughs> yeah. It looks a little not brand X-y to me. A little bit. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Yep. So th- this is immediately followed by uh, his appearance on the Marvin Carson show. Is that what? <laughs> you know, Something you remember Marvin like Carson, right? Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> Uh, Spider-Man's crushing it at being on the talk show. He seems like a real natural. Um, but then Electro shows up, which like panics the audience, but delights J. Jonah Jameson. Um, there are some great shots of him just looking like just that like mania smile he seems to have sometimes. Jameson can't smile and look like a normal human person. Yeah. No. So it's webs versus electricity for like three or four pages. Um, but it ends with both of them kind of getting mutually zapped and then electro kind of stumbles off to recharge and then Spider-Man to kind of mope about, uh, he, he lost his chance at making some money. He like hurt his hands in the fight and his costume is damaged. And the, the whole thing ends with him lying like face down, like totally defeated on his bed, shirtless and sad. So there's a thing I'd like to point out about this issue, Mm -hmm. which is that, most of its sentences end with periods rather than exclamation points. Yeah. Mm. It's very kind of like quiet and downbeat. And that month's bullpen bulletins have an explanation for that. Oh, oh. enlighten uh, us. He's, uh, so in bullpen bulletin says, item, we finally made up our minds. After all these years, we're going to see if we can do it. 
It'll probably set the comics mag world back on its collective ear, but nothing will stop us. It's such an earth-shattering decision that we hardly know how to tell you. It's like the end of an era. It'll shatter the very the traditions of Marvel them to their very foundation, but do what we must and do what we shall. So hold on to your hats, because here's the bit. Starting sooner or later, in some ish or other, we're going to try using periods instead of those for, for Schlugner exclamation points with which we've been ending every sentence since comics began. And, no, all of these sentences end with exclamation points. It'll take a while before you'll notice the change because we print our mags so many months in advance, but watch for it if you can stand the shock. Will it lessen your reading pleasure? Will it toss you off balance? Will you think you picked up the wrong mag? Will anyone give a hoot? Only time will tell. Only Marvel would care. Only the thing has four-fingered hands. <laughs> there's also an item about the specific issue in that bullpen bulletins which says the biggest news of the month is that is the fact that jazzy johnny romita will be penciling spider-man once more but we've still another surprise in store for all you spidey files stan and johnny have gone back have decided to go back to the web swingers original style of story picturization whatever that is, and also to put more emphasis on Peter Parker's private life, as so many of you have requested. Hmm. So, okay. Well, yeah. That explains that splash page where it's Peter talking about all his, his social life subplots. <laughs> yeah, um, a little on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this issue I thought was very dense. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on, mm -hmm. again, as indicated by the first page. Like, you get movement in all of those story zones. Yeah. And then you even get a ton of information on electros like not not only the the flashbacky uh stuff but you also get like his situation being on parole and like him watching tv in his uh, hotel room or where he's living there's just like a lot of characterization and it's spread really wide yeah well and, and this is also during an era where marvel was trying to keep everything condensed to single issues like they were trying not to do too many continued stories and you know the the whole belief was that their distribution was so spotty in some places that a kid could never count on being able to pick up the next issue. So the idea is that every issue that we're publishing right now, someone should be able to pick it up and it could be their first Marvel comic. They'll be able to understand everything they need to know about what's going on, which I think definitely contributes to the density. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, it, but I yeah. mean, it was a pleasure. I mean, it's a, it's a fun, it's a like, I mean, it's, sad and depressing mostly yeah but, <laughs> but it's a nice issue you know well we it, a, lot, a lot of touch yeah. points it also it's like i think it feels like almost the the second consecutive issue that we've seen so usually you know kind of the the idea of a spider-man story is that by the end of the story either spider-man has triumphed somehow but peter parker has lost or peter parker has won the day but spider-man has suffered as a result but this is like the second month in a row where it's like both PD and Spider-Man are just taking a beating. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that they're, they're going with that direction. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's also great to see Spider-Man doing television again. It was the first thing he ever wanted to <laughs> do. True. And yeah. And, uh, he's just returning to his, his first love. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Avengers number 73. Um, this one, the story is called The Sting of the Serpent. Uh, it is written by Roy Thomas. The art is by Frank Giacoya and Sam Granger. 
so you know how like Marvel has been working to bring more diversity into its comics for the last several years or so. Like we've gotten some you know really incredible moments. Uh, like you know the Black Panther making his debut and testing himself against the entire Fantastic Four, or the uh, opening to a Captain America story that we read just a few months mm. ago, uh, where. Um, Cap and Falcon are in Harlem uh, shaking hands on the splash page. And it's the, after their first adventure together. Um, and like for the first four or five pages, Cap is the only Caucasian face uh, in the story. Like it's, it's a really striking moment. Um, I, I, this is another attempt to do something like that. Uh, Roy's taking a big swing um, at, at telling a, an important story. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh well, let's just go through it and, and see what <laughs> see what happens here. <laughs> we got here. Uh, it, it is an Avengers story that doesn't have very much Avengers in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, the villain of the story, uh, as it ultimately is in so many stories, is racism. Uh, and uh, tonight, the part of racism will be played by the Sons of the Serpent. <laughs> Basically, like if Cobra from G.I. Joe uh, was a white supremacist organization instead of like militant libertarians. Uh, th- this is what you would wind up with. And, uh, you know, they're being all racist in an over the top super villainy way, uh, bombing the headquarters of equality organizations and such. So Douglas, can you give us a little context for um, where we have seen the, the sons of the serpent um, and, and sort of like, where after this story they will show up in the Marvel Universe. Well, it's easy to get the, the Sons of the Serpent confused with the Serpent Squad and the Serpent Society <laughs> and the Serpent Solutions, who are all related to each other, but not to the Sons of the Serpent for some reason. The right. Sons of the Serpent are pretty much an all-purpose uh, like racist organization or front for a racist organization that's actually secretly run in both of their first two appearances uh i'm gonna spoil the end of the next issue but run in both uh both of their first two appearances they are secretly run by disguised people of color which is just not a good look for a story um like once maybe twice oof oof just just oof no um (sighs) this as you say, this story is trying. We get the first appearance of Monica Lynn, who's going to go on to be a big character in Black Panther stories over the next decade or so. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Who is uh, originally appears as you know a pop singer who is completely apolitical and uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm not. A fan, I'm a singer, not a politician. She says, "I don't feel it's my place to tell people what to believe." And then she's attacked by the Sons of the Serpent and, and is immediately radicalized in that kind of you know a, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged kind of way. Uh-huh. Um, right. It's it, all real clunky. Yeah. So clunky. It, so so the the show that that Monica goes on when we first meet her. Um, It's, it's being hosted by two rival TV personalities. Uh, We, we have uh, Montague Hale, uh, who's a a black man who hosted a TV show called black world. Uh, It is basically like the straw man for black power. Like that's, you know, um, he, he is, he is the militant, he's the voice of the militant black man. Um, And then you've got Dan Dunn, um, who is a smarmy white guy, 
who he definitely has voted for Trump by this point at least four times in his life. <laughs> He's the foremost bigot in America today. <laughs> Which this is 1969. That is not an easy title yeah, to attain. Yeah, that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah. Was, uh, he, uh, was he just a completely fictionalized character or were they drawing on anything in particular, you think? You know, I was trying to figure out if it was based on anyone in particular, and I I think it may have just been a composite, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely okay. coincidental. He does say things like, we have a guest of separate but equal importance right now, which I yeah. like, okay, he's slappable. Great. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he's just. He's got a face you'd never get tired of punching. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, after it, Montague Hale winds up co-hosting this show, or I guess he's a, a, a guest on the Dan Dunn show, um, after he himself is assaulted by the Sons of the Serpent, which, as Douglas alluded to, we will find out more about that um, uh, next issue. Um, and, and they just go on. He, he goes on to so the two of them can argue about race, racial issues um, uh, and, and bump the ratings, uh, basically. Um, so they bring Monica Lynn on. She's very apolitical. The Sons of the Serpent target her. Um, she is rescued in the nick of time uh, by the Black Panther. And the, the scene where like she all of a sudden, you know, kind of realizes that <laughs> that racism is a thing uh, is is also a little. A little clunky, but um, I, Douglas, I liked your your line about you know uh, conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Um, yeah, it's very that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and she she basically goes uh, on the Dan Dunn show the next night again, um, and she is agreeing with Montague Hale this time about you know uh, everything he's saying. Because um, I guess Dan Dunn just keeps booking the same guests night after night. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe it was like a week. Like this is the week where they're doing this or something like that. And next right. week will be Petrix or what have you. Sure. Well, so far the book's called The Avengers. It says that right on the front of the book. You know, it's a title that's you know takes up the top quarter. Uh, they haven't really done more than watch TV at this point uh, in the story, uh, but they do decide that the Sons of the Serpent have finally crossed a line, uh, and they're going to shut them down. Uh, but then. Uh, Chala says, no, this is my fight. And so we get a very nice wordless page showing the Panther infiltrating the Sons of the Serpents, giant snaky submarine. I mean, they're they're really over the top super villainy. Um, yeah, it's like Bond level, right? I, w- yeah. I would like to point out that before this, we get a scene mm. where the Black Panther goes to talk to Monica Lynn and says, don't go on TV tomorrow. I'm asking you as a soul brother. And she says, soul brother. Then you, why haven't you let anyone know this before? And he says, I thought it was enough to just be to be just a man. But now I know it's time to stand up and be counted. Now, stand up and be counted was kind of a civil rights slogan around 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that nobody knows that the Black Panther is black. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just a couple of issues ago, I think we saw him in his like half half mask cowl where you can see the lower half of his face. Yeah. Plus, he's, I think, generally known to be from Wakanda. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Do you think this is Roy Thomas commenting on what the Black Panther has been up until this point? Where, like, when he's introduced in Fantastic Four and for his early appearances, uh, and this is the the way that, that Stan wrote 
a lot of the early black characters where they are they're incidentally black you know like their their blackness is not the core part of their personality um and so and they certainly do not get into you know the the nitty-gritty of you know racial issues or anything like that um but this this feels like roy is saying it's like no we've got the first black superhero for better or for worse as clunky as it might be like we need to tell a story about race in america with right. our black superhero that could well be like it it just it just seems strange to me like yeah. honestly a lot of roy thomas avengers in this period it, i just think ask what why why are you doing this <laughs> what <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about um, like uh, I don't performative progressivism, or, or you know, where you're like you say the thing because it makes you look cool, or you're you know gets you raises your social standing or whatever. And like I was, I was wondering if this is genuine. Like I was wondering how genuine their efforts are. Like, is this a sales effort? Is this like no, we need to change society? Like, is this to make the college kids happy? I I don't know. I I I. Gave it a bunch of thought and didn't really come to any meaningful conclusions. I I generally get the sense in this period that there are some hearts that are really in the right place and they're just not terribly clued into how to do it right. Yeah. Which, you know, they're trying and they're failing, but they're trying. Yeah. Which, I mean, to be fair, you could have accurately described me the same way in the 1990s and this is 20 years before that so yeah right right um you know i i i do think i i get the feeling that roy is sincere uh i mean he like we just saw last month the um the first appearance of sunfire um and that was roy had been wanting for a long time to tell a story about a japanese superhero who has the tragedy of his his uh, origin ties back to America's atomic bombing of, uh, of Hiroshima. And so like, I, I feel like he does want to tell these big stories of like, you know, social importance. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think like he's, he's in over his head and I don't know if he realizes quite how over his head he is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Interesting note. Um, kind of talking about this era and, and sort of this topic, uh, I think it was last week, Tom Brevoort uh, posted something about uh, Lobo, uh, the first African-American character to have his own comic uh, in the, I think the 1950s. Um, and I had put something in the comments, you know, asking a little bit about, you know, like Marvel. Uh, you, we have seen a lot of uh, like a conspicuous effort to include um, more characters of color um, in Marvel books around this era. Um, I was asking if he had any more information about it. Uh, and Kurt Busiek actually jumped into uh, the comment and responded to it. And he said that one of the things he said that was really interesting, I thought, was that uh, apparently uh, a lot of the push came from Gene Colan, um, who hmm. apparently... He, he he really enjoyed drawing black characters. He thought it was an important thing to do. You know, we saw the Falcon appear in a Gene Colan book. We saw Willie Lincoln um, uh, in the Daredevil books uh, show up there. Um, so, like, I think it's kind of cool that um, apparently Gene Colan was a driving force behind this. If I'm remembering correctly, Gene Colan also drew, like, 
a romance story in one of those Marvel romance titles a couple of years later that was the first romance story with all black characters that was in one of Marvel's romance books. Wow. Oh, wow. That's huge. Yeah. Very cool. So, yeah, I guess just to put a bow on this one, we, we end on a cliffhanger. The Black Panther is caught by the Sons of the Serpent. To be continued, true believer. <laughs> it's just the uh, the the tentative lurching evolution of Marvel and and their their social uh, storytelling uh, proceeds apace. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if this one's going to move the ball all that far down the field, but um, it was definitely an interesting read. You know, it's it's funny you see them trying so hard with on the racial front in this issue, but on the like. Uh, gender front it <laughs> yeah it's like they can't talk i feel like i'm saying this every week now but like they can't speak to a woman without referring to them as lady m- miss female uh, like yeah it, yeah it, like it's almost every single sentence like almost any time a woman is addressed it's like it, it, <laughs> they just make such a weird deal of it <laughs> yeah it's like you you know there's drawings in these things like we this month is the the penultimate issue of X-Men uh, of the Silver Age X-Men uh, before it goes like Steve Rogers into cold storage for an indefinite period of time well, it goes it goes like um, like rawhide kid into reruns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> goes into syndication for a while. Yeah, uh, yeah. This one is, is X Men number sixty five. Uh, the issue, the story is called "Before I'd Be Slave." Uh, the art uh, is by our team of Neil Adams and Tom Palmer, as we have had for the last year or so. Uh, And coming in uh, as writer of this issue is Dennis O'Neill, who has done a few Marvel things, but we haven't seen him for a while. And of course, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams would go on to co-create some of the most memorable comics of the 1970s. Uh, They just wouldn't be co-creating many of them for Marvel. uh, They'd go on to do the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, the Hard Traveling Heroes, talking about, you know, extremely socially oriented comic books. Um, they had an amazing run on Batman. I think they're like within a year of introducing Ra's al Ghul and Man Bat, uh, a.k.a. Sauron preliminary sketches. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, they, and they do uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Um, Ooh, that which is true. What, Amazing. Uh, what's, yeah. what's that? What's going on there? What's that? It is so much better than it has any right to be, Jamie. Yeah, it would have to be. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is a giant treasury sized thing. It was reprinted a few years ago. It's like an 80 page long, huge, oversized thing that somehow comes up with an excuse for Superman and Muhammad Ali to have a boxing match for the fate of the earth. And remarkably, it's good. Mm-hmm. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I can't summarize it better than that. They box wow. under a red sun so that it's uh, a fair so fight. It's fair fight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is but, it for uh, like for charity? It, like, I, oh, and the survival yeah. of earth. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I guess if you consider guess that, that is charity. charity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, all that stuff is, is, is ahead of these two gentlemen, but we ain't in the 1970s yet. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about X-Men number 65. Yes. Uh, so y'all remember how Professor X definitely died in X-Men number 42, right? Um, well, we'll never see him again. It's so sad. Yeah, actually, turns out he didn't. Uh, and, and Jean Grey apparently knew the entire time uh, these last two years that he was not dead. 
so Douglas, who died in uh, in Charles Xavier's place? Oh, that that would be that would be the changeling. Mm. Mm. Who yeah. I have uh, uh, Rankin, Carl Rankin, or rank? It's that changeling. Is that the changeling? It's 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 the changeling who uh, showed up like four issues before Professor X died. Right. He was a member of legendary uh, supervillain team Factor Three. Yes. Uh, <laughs> who came to Professor X and said, uh, hey, so I've been to a doctor and I'm terminally ill and I want to make up for everything I did. And you got anything for me to do? And of course, uh, the master gaslighter, uh, Professor X says like, oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, become me and die in my place. Mm, okay. Yes. Oh, I was thinking of mimic. I'm sorry. I was I was yeah. way off. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, same thing. Not really. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and and it, it turns out Changeling's timing was fantastic uh, because the prof had just learned about the existence of an impending an impending invasion of an alien race known as the Xenox, uh, which is not a Dr. Seuss creation, but sounds like it should have been. <laughs> um, they are described as a race absolutely lacking compassion. Their only art is war. Their only joy, death. Um, uh, and they, yeah, they, they also uh, perfected technology to let them drive their planet around the cosmos. <laughs> that was so crazy. That's a crazy <laughs> thing to, to put down on paper. Yeah. Uh, and they were heading for Earth. So, so they're heading for Earth so that their gravitational field will soften up Earth enough to, you know, come invade it and do whatever it is that they do with planets. Like, yeah, what do they even want the Earth for? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But, okay, yeah, and and of course it's not it's not going to like cause any problems for their own planet. It's gravitational <laughs> no, because right, gravity right. only works one way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, unidirectional fam gravity, famous for its unidirectionality. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, this, I feel like this is another natural time to mention the fact that I don't know if this is still the case, but Neil Adams at one point was a believer in expanding Earth theory. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this okay. Yes, now it's all now it's all coming so, together. So maybe uh, maybe this is all part of it. Yeah. So we get to actually see Chet Huntley and David Brinkley explaining all this. Yeah. Uh, which is a which is a real improvement on on uh, Marvin Carson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. So 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 we we get the 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 scenario here. Um, uh, Professor X has decided he, he did decide to work full time on planning the defeat of the Xenox. So Changeling impersonated him. Uh, X divided his powers between Changeling and Marvel Girl. So that explains why Marvel Girl's gotten like the the uh, the telepathy uh, in the last couple years. Uh, and then when Changeling was killed by Grotesque in X-Men number 42, Jean kept her mouth shut be because you know what? It None of this makes a lot of sense. Just. <laughs> just roll with it. So because, because Charles Xavier is a terrible person and gets his child army to do his, uh, like brainwashing and, and gaslighting for him. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It's not, it's not the subtext at this point. It's, yeah. it's just the text. Yeah. It's not even saying the quiet part out loud. It's just, there yeah. is only the loud part. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, it, professor X puts the X-Men through their paces in the danger room one more time for old time's sake. Uh, and then he launches the X-Men at the Xenox's invading fleet once it approaches Earth. Um, and he's very 
uncharacteristically transparent with them. Like they have no hope of defeating them. Their only job is to basically buy him enough time um, so that uh, he can mount his plan to defeat the Znox, uh, which is reaching out to every mind on earth that belongs to a compassionate person. Um, so no haters. Um <laughs> He he unifies all of their minds and beams them to Marvel Girl, who sends them to Havoc, who transmits them to Cyclops. Cyclops fires them at the Xenox's world um, as Iceman is cooling down his head so it doesn't melt. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, liberal interpretation of a lot of these abilities. Yeah, so it's basically like a weaponized Care Bear stare. Um, mm-hmm. And all this goodwill causes the Xenox agonizing pain and they shift their planet into reverse and they hightail it out of there. Um, uh, Professor X collapses from exhaustion. Maybe he's dead again. If so, at least he got to end one more story by brain blasting the enemy while the X-Men fought a mo- mostly pointless battle. Now, I would like to point out that one of my absolute favorite things that the Marvel Continuity Project has ever done, the Marvel Continuity uh, Project are the people who uh, have gone through every every issue of every book and the Chronology Project, not Continuity Project, chrono- Chronology Project, uh, gone through every book and tried to figure out the order of appearances for every single character. And for this issue, they have marked Spider-Man as being behind the scenes. The reason that Spider-Man is behind the scenes in this issue is that in X-Men 138, which is the story where Cyclops is recapping everything that has happened in the series up to that point (laughs) to buy Claremont and Burnham to figure out what's going on now that they've had to completely change course. Uh, We see in that panel, like hundreds and hundreds of tiny heads, and one of them is a Spider-Man head. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes. So he is therefore behind the scenes in this story as part of the uh, goodwilled people who are repelling the Xenox invasion. Wow. Whoa. Wow, that is a deep cut. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I, I believe all three of us are listeners uh, of the uh, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men podcast. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And they oh, yeah. are just finally getting around to covering the Onslaught storyline from the 90s. Yes. Where at the very beginning of this, the sub-basement that Professor X has locked himself away oh, in yeah. for this last two years winds up playing a part in the uh, the first appearance of Onslaught. Where, Indeed. Yeah. So it all comes back around. It's like Marvel, yeah. man. They they use every part of the pig. <laughs> <laughs> they still claim that the first half of that onslaught story is excellent. I love the first half. I feel like it it falls apart at the end, and that's where I, I understand their uh, uh, let's say dispassion towards, or I mm-hmm. guess negative passion towards. But yeah, I, I thought the beginning was great. I think my big problem with onslaught is that at some point somebody had to explain what exactly it was the onslaught wanted Mm. and everybody thought that somebody else was doing that explanation part (laughs) (laughs) like there's some reprint of it that that uh, prints some of the like behind the scenes documents like okay so this is onslaught's big plan this is what onslaught wants to do which is never explained anywhere on in the story itself yeah right right He's just so fast and so big and so powerful. And uh, okay, uh, hand waving. Here's reward. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, it's, it's during that peculiar time when Marvel Comics seemed embarrassed to be publishing Marvel Comics. Yep. Um, so well, uh, yeah. So so Professor X is back. The X Men are sort of back to a status quo. Um, 
Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are not sticking around long because there's only one more issue of this thing left, and then and then it goes into reruns. Basically, it goes it becomes a reprint book for f- about five years. Um, but uh, how how strange? I, I guess this might be as good a time as any to just talk a little bit about you know kind of reflecting back on the Silver Age X Men and. I mean, now the X-Men does wind up becoming one of the most important comics in Marvel's history. Um, And I'd say like, you know, for the last several years, even like the X-Books have been, you know, among the most exciting thing happening at Marvel. Um, And it's so strange to me to think that, I mean, they gave it six years to try to, you know, figure out the formula and make this work and they couldn't do it. It's so strange. And they tried. They kept trying. They changed directions so many times. Mm-hmm. They brought uh, Steranko in. He lasted two issues. They brought Neil Adams in. He lasted a little while. And like, there's there's something there. There's enough to like keep it going as reruns instead of canceling it. It it mm-hmm. becomes you know the Funyuns of Marvel. Like there's not, there's not a brand manager. There's just, (laughs) they just keep making them and people keep buying them enough to, to keep printing them. Right. Yeah. I I have a huge bias towards X-Men stuff. So like, I can't tell, I, I, I I lack objectivity for these, but like, I didn't hate this issue. I mean, it's ridiculous um, and doesn't make a ton of sense, but there's elements of it that I think are kind of great and better than a lot of the other titles that we're reading right now. Like, yeah. some of it seems ahead of its time and it just where it falters, it falters so hugely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the it, art it, is great. It's really, it's great. a beautiful looking issue, fantastically designed characters. You know, this, if you think of it as the end game of three years of, you know, like Charlie has been behind the scenes instead of like, Oh, we might as well bring the bald guy back. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's compelling that way, potentially. Yeah, and I think we also benefit from sort of the hindsight. I mean, one of the things that I think Claremont gets doesn't get really enough credit for is that, I mean, not he was writing great new X-Men stories and building out the mythology, but he also, like, he went back to the old stuff and he found ways to just, like, bring some of the Silver Age stuff forward. So it's like when you first see Sauron, it feels like a big deal because you know, like, later on he becomes a a part of these other stories. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I it's, it, it is funny, like reading it now and just seeing where it starts from, um, and then figuring out where it's going to go from here. Um, and, and what a strange road it's going to be to get there. Do you feel that there is more, I, I'm already, um, leading the witness, <laughs> like <laughs> the degree of, character continuity between the x-men and say tony stark mm-hmm. is that equal like is there the same character continuity with this crowd or or anybody else Does the question makes yeah, sense i mean you you don't the x-men characters are basically all if they are not always quite who they are they can always be kind of squared with who they are somehow mm-hmm like there's there's you get to see them growing up a little and a lot of that is after the fact and it's not like 60s x-men don't have some interesting potential in them like the honestly the x-men first class comics that jeff parker did much later Mm -hmm. um 
they are set during like this the original team period and they are so entertaining they are so much fun even the parts that are not like okay let's do you know cute one done in ones for all ages readers like there there are really interesting characters that are brought out as having like an interesting group dynamic and playing off each other really well and having sort of these long simmering plot threads and then there's the actual 60s stuff which is just trying and failing and trying and failing over and over and over yeah yeah good I, I i was gonna say i think you could you could make a case for i think outside of the fantastic four i don't know that marvel has really figured out how to do team books mm. um and the fantastic four aren't really a I mean, they're, they're adventurers. They're not like a superhero team, but I would say like the Avengers is a lot more uneven than people remember, you know? Um, yeah. X-Men is very uneven. Um, so, you know, it, it might just be a thing where they just haven't figured out how to, how to write a good team book or, you know, they haven't figured out the secret sauce yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think maybe what I'm feeling is that because the ages of these people have been allowed to change a little bit, like the X-Men have been allowed to grow up kind of. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the understanding that they used to be kids and now there's a next generation of X-Men and a next generation. So like these people have aged a little bit. Yeah. So there are variants in personalities or traits, you know, which we can attribute to 50 years of comic book writing. Like you can attribute to them having grown a bit, but like Tony Stark and Namor and Hulk are basically the same as they've always been. Mm-hmm. So like if they have changed, it seems like more of a mistake or like a retcon or it, like you see the puppet strings a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can see that. I mean, with X-Men, I think in the 60s, the premise of the book keeps changing. Yeah. Like it starts off as the school for superhero story and then that's running its course and you don't get the like, they've graduated and they're going on to their live story that you, you get the like, Oh, now the professor's dead and woo factor three. And then it's like, <laughs> we don't know how to do this as a team. So we're going to do solo stories for a while. Right. Yep. And see if, any, if like one of them is popular and maybe spotlight that one. And none of them are that great as leading characters. They are, they are meant to be ensemble characters. They are meant to play off each other, which they eventually figure out. And then it's the like, let's do let's do the pretty. Co- oh, let's introduce. Uh, yeah, Lorna and Alex. Let's get some new characters in there. Yeah. Um, and they they just keep throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Yep. And then eventually they get Neil Adams, and it's like, oh, this could work. And then they get the notice that they're getting canceled. And they're <laughs> like, oh, maybe this can't work. Yeah. Uh, and then they get the sales figures from the Neil Adams uh, issues, and they're like. Let's not pull the plug just yet. <laughs> Let's just make this a reprint thing for a while and yeah. see where this goes. So was was reprints a thing? Was that like a common practice? Yeah, Mar- I would say like what maybe a quarter of Marvel's output at this point is is reprinting stuff from it was the Golden to, Age. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was starting to be with the. Uh, I mean, fantasy masterpieces as it started out was Golden Age reprints. That that was like Roy Thomas's baby. Like that was where mm-hmm. we get to print like the old Roy likes. Uh, there were the the new romance books after their first couple issues would have like one or two new stories and then one or two old stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Sergeant Fury at some point around this point becomes like alternating new issues with reprinted issues. Yep. And 
I think some of the Western books are doing that too, like alternating mm-hmm. new stuff and old stuff. Um, Millie the model goes basically pretty reprint heavy at some point around this because yeah. the, the the comics where there were not necessarily people who had been buying it since the beginning and you know, like wanted to see how the story evolved, the comics that had a pretty consistent status quo where any issue was as good as any other issue, especially the Westerns. I mean, the Western yeah. stories never, ever evolve. Character rides in at the beginning, rides out at the end. Mm-hmm. Boom. Um, and then just the sales over time just like gradually decline or, or are, were people into it the whole way because like they were getting, they knew what they were getting and they were happy about it? I mean, I think the idea was like, if you're buying a, if you're buying a Western book, you know what you're getting. You're getting Western action. You're getting dudes with guns on horses. Mm. And it doesn't really matter that much if it's newly produced or old stuff. And they'll sell they'll sell the same. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't and, know. I I mean yeah. this is this is this is me going off the top of my head. This is not me knowing. Yeah, yeah. Well <laughs> anything and, you and, say and, is officially true as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> <laughs> with great and, power. <laughs> Yes. Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, and uh, all of Marvel's annuals in 1969, they're uh, 100% reprints. Like we haven't gotten any original stories. So I think also like the superhero sales and I think the comics industry in general is is hitting a, a kind of a, a downturn. So they're looking for ways to stretch. You know, it's like why hire a new creative team to do a new issue when we could just reprint something and, you know, make a buck off of it. So, um, yeah, they got stock. They might as well, you know, use it. So I know that DC around this time is doing a lot of reprints in its romance titles. Mm-hmm. But one thing they're doing with the romance reprints is they are hiring artists to touch up the hairstyles and fashions to bring them up to date. That's a really good idea. Yeah. The audience is going to know if it's wrong. Wow. That's a very interesting. I never thought about that. That's a really, yeah. yeah. Huh. So that's all the uh, the issues we're going to talk about uh, that came out in December of 1969. And so now the last thing uh, that we're going to do is talk about our recommendations for uh, things that we think our listeners might want to check out that are not Marvel Comics from December 1969. Um, the recommendation I'm going to make uh, this episode is Unstable Molecules by James Sturm and Guy Davis. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, James Sturm, but he did establish the Center for Cartoon Studies in my home state of Vermont. Um, so I'm I'm uh, indebted to him for that. Uh, it was set up uh, fairly close to the former site of a strip club that I used to DJ at in college. Uh, so that's <laughs> another great little uh, crossover. Lot to unpack um, there. Yeah, uh, he's uh, he's also the co-founder of Seattle's weekly newspaper, The Stranger. So he also has a Pacific Northwest connection. Um, and he's written, uh, a handful of comics that I will probably get around to recommending here, uh, over the years. Um, but unstable molecules, it's his only Marvel comic. Um, and, uh, the conceit is that it is the story of the real people that the fantastic four were supposedly based on. Um, and it is, uh, a, a wonderfully bittersweet snapshot of four interconnected lives in the early 1960s. Um, mm-hmm. I think anyone who's done a close reading of the Silver Age Fantastic Four, uh, especially anyone who has been listening to our show as we've talked about some of this stuff, um, will appreciate just how well Sturm captures a lot of like the sort of reading between the lines um, 
that we do and, and he extrapolates the story from it that uh, I just, I don't know, I feel compelled to revisit this book like every few years. I, I just finished a reread uh, not long ago. Um, it is not a Fantastic Four story. It's not even like a what if superheroes existed in the real world story. Um, it's more of like, what if real people existed in a comic? Um, mm. And I just, I love it very much. I think it's a really great, great book. Wow, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, what have you got to uh, to recommend this month? Oh, man. Uh, so I've been uh, spending a lot of time wrestling with Marvel Unlimited's uh, library with marked as red. Um, <laughs> so you're not recommending Marvel Unlimited is what you're saying? <laughs> not, not at this particular moment. Um, but uh, since I've been trying to trick it into uh, acknowledging the me having read some of these comics, I've been rereading a bunch of random stuff. Um, and, and I've also been pretentiously trying to read Don Quixote and it's not going well. Um, but I will say I have on my like to start list, I've been hearing about Peter David's uh, run on the Hulk for a billion years. And I, I realized, uh, I looked him up online the other day, um, and realized that I, a lot of things that I love happen to have been written by him, uh, before I knew that comics were written by humans. <laughs> um, so I think that, um, even though I am generally a, a Hulk hater, uh, I'm, I think I'm going to give it a shot. Um, so it's great. It's great. Yeah, I've yeah. never heard anyone say anything bad about it. Uh, yeah. I will um, say that uh, Douglas's book, Reading Comics, um, completely changed my uh, like comic reading world and life. And then as a result, my real life, because now I um, am on a podcast uh, where I talk about comics a bunch. <laughs> so it really, I was, uh, I was like leaning away from comics uh, pretty hard. Um, at that point. And I was thinking like, maybe I can give up this childhood thing that I've been doing for so long and, and maybe it's time to let it go. And I, I think from, from talking to Katie at books with pictures, I, she either recommended it or said enough things that I, I sought it out. And it, it flipped so many switches in my brain that I, I wouldn't say any of the things I say on the show, if not for, for having read that book, it really, it like added a dimension to something that was previously flat is, is the best way I can explain it. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Hope so, you yeah. like the new book too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, Douglas. Uh, obviously, all of the Marvels. Everyone's got to read that. What else do you have to recommend? What else do I have to recommend? Um, so, a completely unMarvel related book that I just rediscovered because I'm teaching comics history again, and I've taught this book a couple times. Mister O by Lewis Trondheim. Hmm. This may be the single funniest book of any kind I have ever read. It's 32 pages long. It is wordless. It has 60 panels on each page. It is about a little guy who's basically like an O with arms and legs who wants to get from one side of a chasm to the other. I think I've described it as being like a Roadrunner cartoon written by Samuel Beckett. <laughs> that's very accurate yeah, yeah wow. that it's it's uh it has a drawing style so simple that even people who cannot draw can draw it perfectly i when i was teaching comics writing a couple of years ago one of the first assignments i gave my students was make up another page of mr o and draw it on that's a great and idea 
every single one of them rose to the occasion and all of them were like, I don't know how to draw. I can't draw. I'm like, you can draw this. And Whoa. they could. And <laughs> it's great. And it has an absolutely perfect ending that I will not spoil. And I just remember the first time I ever read Mr. O by Louis Trondheim. Halfway through it, I was laughing so hard that I fell off my couch twice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So that's my recommendation. Excellent recommendation. Yeah, that's going in the show notes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, Douglas, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on here. Thank um, you. Congratulations on the release of uh, all of the Marvels. Um, thank you so much. It's it, it, it's. I, I've been waiting for this. I know you have been uh, working on this for so long and uh, I, I can't wait to uh, to crack it open and read it. Um, yeah. uh, what what else can we promote uh, for you? You've got some other stuff uh, going on that folks might be interested in. Um, I'm uh, making a few appearances. I guess uh, by the time this airs, I'm going to be uh, – appearing at the Portland Book Festival, getting interviewed on stage by none other than Kelly Sue DeConnick. Whoa! Uh, right? That's amazing. On uh, And that is on November 13th, I believe. And before that, I'm going to be touring California from November 2nd to 12th uh, with a stop at the Vegas Valley County Comics Festival in the middle on November 6th. And then a bunch of stops around uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and all that stuff. It'll be on DouglasWolf.com. List of tour dates there. Come say hi. I love meeting people. Wow. Excellent. Just hearing, imagining doing that made my hands literally clammy. <laughs> that sounds so <laughs> exciting and scary and cool. I'll probably be bringing my ukulele. Yeah. Oh yes, excellent. Uh, I also have to. I have to plug your six one six society. Um, oh yeah. oh yes, awesome right. Marvel Comics book club. Uh, if uh, what what is the address of your Patreon to uh, get it's, access to this? Yeah, it is patreon.com slash Douglas Wolk. Uh, and the 616 Society is, as you say, it is, it is the secret book club for Marvel Comics nerds. We talk about a different issue every day. Yes, it's it, great. It's, yeah, it's great. I've been I've been a lurker on there for years. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Likewise. Um, well, again, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, this is great. Yeah. And I, I got to throw a plug for our Patreon in there one more time. <laughs> um, subscribe uh, to it for the fantastic price of four bucks a month at patreon.com slash Marvel by the month and get exclusive content. Uh, please review us on Apple podcasts or whatever you're using to listen to this. Um, and if you'd like some free stuff in the mail, you can send us a screenshot of your five-star review to Marvel by the month at gmail.com. Instagram's our main social channel. You can find us there at Marvel by the month and Marvel by the month.com has links to our other social channels as well as our shop. So that's it for this week. Um, take care of yourselves. Get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Wear a mask, even if you are. Buy three copies of all of the Marvels from Books with Pictures. And above all, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Bye.